Hi, Juliet here with a quick message before this episode starts. Everything you need to be more strategic amid the busyness of the school term is contained in the 170 plus episodes of this podcast. But sometimes you can get there a bit faster with some personalised help. I host a termly online workshop specifically designed to help the support staff within schools to make the shift from being reactive to strategic. Our next workshop is coming up soon and we're going to be reflecting on how things have gone this academic year and strategising for the academic year to come so that you can confidently prioritise your workload, overcome the obstacles that are holding you back and redirect your time and focus onto your priorities. At the end of the session, I promise you're going to be feeling more energised, ready to hit the ground running with a clear plan of action. This term's workshop is going to be run on Thursday the 16th of May, and you can find out more and book your place at www.consultjuliet.co.uk slash plan. I hope to see you there. Now, let's launch into this episode. Welcome to the Independent School Podcast with me, Juliette Corbett. As an executive coach and strategy advisor, I guide senior leaders in the world of education to find their strategic focus, empower their teams and regain control over their time, helping them go from exhausted to strategic. On this podcast, I share the ideas and tips that I've developed over the years to help the leaders I've worked with one-to-one so I can help you to focus on your priorities and achieve your goals with confidence and ease. And this week we are diving into a core fundraising topic, and that is how we can use best practice to structure our fundraising campaigns. Now, this is the first of a two-part series. There was too much content to get into one episode, basically. In this first episode, I'm going to be running through the best practice that we know is very, very established within the fundraising world around how to phase big fundraising campaigns. We're going to talk about the five phases of a fundraising campaign. I'm going to tell you why each phase is important, how they work together, and hopefully along the way help you to avoid some of the little tripping points that I've seen school fundraising teams come across time and time again. So that's this week, kind of introductory level, if you like, really helpful for people who are new to schools fundraising. And then next week, I'm going to talk about a slightly more advanced level discussion around when you can break the rules. There are some of these rules that you can break, but only under certain circumstances. So this week, I'm going to set out the phases of the campaign. And next week, I'm going to talk about what might happen if you want to adjust this best practice model. Okay, so let's dive into the five phases of a fundraising campaign. Now, just as a very brief aside, so you know a little bit of the history to this best practice. This is a a concept which emerged from North America, mostly from the United States, has been very well established within um, a lot of fundraising, but especially within educational fundraising within North America for I don't know, a couple of decades, a very, very significant amount of time. Certainly when I first sort of discovered all of this, my first fundraising job started in 2002. So it would have been a couple of years after that where I started to get into all of this side of things. And it was already very established by that point. 
Now, even though it's emerged from the United States, we know that we have to adjust the best practice coming from any other region or any other sector. That has been adjusted to some extent for various different kind of geographic regions around the world. Um, But in actual fact, what's really interesting is it hasn't needed to be adjusted that much. I've got, actually I'll put a link to it in the episode notes, but it's quite old now, but a kind of a a textbook slash Bible from the US written, I don't know, must be about 15 years ago. And in actual fact, it's pretty similar now to the way that we were doing it back then and the way that they've been doing it in the US as well. So I think this is one of those things which, yes, we have to be careful about adapting best practice from a different geographical region, different environment into a school that may be, you know, a completely different region of the world. But there is a strong reason why this best practice works. And in actual fact, I'm going to dwell on that a little bit this time. And then that's going to be the underpinnings of how we can break the rules next time is understanding why this model works so well. Okay, so the first of the five phases is the planning phase. Now, these phases evolve over time. And it's important to understand that you might get through some of the planning phase and indeed some of the following phases and then realise that a project isn't a goer. So sometimes we don't go through all of these phases to successful completion, but we know that planning has to be the first phase that we go through with any potential project and some projects won't make it out the other end of this phase. So the planning phase will involve very detailed understanding from the fundraising team about all of the details of the project that's being proposed. Depending on the type of project, now the classic example for this model is buildings, what are often called capital campaigns, so facilities and buildings projects. But it might be to do with bursaries or school partnerships project or any other kind of project that you're fundraising for. Understanding the costings, understanding how the project is designed, either in terms of the building design or in terms of the bursary programme, how the design works, what's actually going to happen on the ground if it's going to be like a partnerships project with other schools, why it's important for your school. So why has this particular project floated up to the surface as being a strategic priority for fundraising? Why do we care? What's the impact it's going to have? Now, all of those conversations need to start being guided by the fundraising team, or if you're just one person, as sometimes is the case within schools, the director of development or the development manager needs to guide these conversations. But that individual is not responsible for producing all of this information. Normally, there'll be someone else who's leading the project. That might be the bursar, the director of finance, the director of school partnerships, whoever it is who's taking the lead in terms of planning the project. It's a co-creation process between the fundraising person and the person who's leading this project in the school. Through this planning process, we are looking to develop a draft case for support. Now, the phrase case for support means different things to different people. The way that I like to think of it is a behind the scenes depository, if you like, for all of the detailed information about the project. It will start as maybe a shared Google Doc or something similar with lots of people dumping information into it, lots of kind of brain dumps of of details of costings and timeframes, all that kind of stuff. And then slowly over time, the fundraising person will refine it into something which is looking like it could be shared externally. The way I like to think of it is the actual case for support is a very long 
detailed document, which you probably wouldn't share in its raw format. But what you then do is you're able to pull out sections of it in order to then incorporate into brochures or proto brochures like fact sheets, things that you're creating for one to one conversations with major prospects. So by the end of the planning phase, the fundraising team needs to have great clarity, costings, designs, timeframes, exactly what's going to happen, the impact, the draft case support needs to be ready. There might be a few holes in that. To be honest, at this point, I normally don't see that draft case for support fully fleshed at this point, and that's fine, as long as the key information is there and available. That then enables you to go into the next stage, which is the feasibility phase. During the feasibility phase of a campaign, what you're looking to do is to get a robust feedback from prospects, so potential donors, about whether they like the idea of the project and whether they're likely to give, and if so, at what level. Now, one of the big myths around the feasibility stage is that it needs to be done by a consultant. I did used to do them. Sometimes it's the right thing to have a consultant to do them, but I don't think you should default assume that it's the right thing to have a consultant to do a big feasibility study. It's possible to do it yourself. I'm going to put a link to a previous podcast episode where I talk about if you're going to do it yourself, this is the way to structure it. I'll put that in the episode notes. It doesn't need to happen externally. It doesn't need to be expensive, but it does need to happen. You need to have a way that you as a school, as a leadership team, as a fundraiser, are going to get honest, robust information about whether this pros- this project has any hope of getting gifts to it. And the people we really want to talk to at this stage are the potential major gifts prospects. So the people who have the capacity and the willingness, hopefully, to give a significant scale of gift to the project. So at the end of the feasibility phase, what you're looking for is feedback from your community, from your group of prospects, your pool of prospects, so that the school is then able to give it a go or no-go decision. Now, if the results of that feasibility study shows that people aren't that interested, the project stops here because you cannot make people give money to you. Sometimes you can tweak the case for support, make it a bit more what the donors are interested in, then they go back to probably not the same donors, probably a slightly different group of potential donors to have conversations about uh, a refined case for support that might get enough positive feedback to go forward. But you would be really shooting yourself in the foot, basically, if you push ahead with a project and you don't have a positive feasibility study to underpin that decision to go ahead. Now, assuming you've got some good feedback, you've got people who have said, yes, I'd be willing to give, you know, I need more detail, but this sounds like the kind of thing I'd give to. And I think I'd probably give, a, you know, the, the top level of your giving pyramid or the, the second stage down, you know, a significant gift to this project. You know, I'd seriously consider that. That's the point where you need to firm up a couple of details. Now, by this point, your case for support will be refined. You'll be constantly refining that through the whole campaign. It's never a static document, constantly improving it over time. But it's starting to firm up a bit. You're also able at that point to start to firm up the target for the project and the timescale for the project. I always think of target and timescale as being interrelated decisions. Normally, with most 
school communities. If your target is going to be a little bit overly ambitious at this point, you might be able to fix that by expanding the timescale over which you're able to fundraise. So pushing back the start of the project, basically. Although that isn't the silver bullet. It's not always going to work. That means you can reach your target just by moving the timescale. Equally, sometimes you can do the opposite. You can sometimes phase the project itself to create a really achievable, like a really confidently achievable target over quite a shortish time scale. And then you can say, if we can make this target, you know, in a, an ambitious time scale, then we can go to phase two of the project quite soon afterwards. So there are different ways that you can twist the, the dials, if you like, and target and time scale often I consider need to be con- thought of at the same time. So at the end of the feasibility phase, which is phase number two, you've firmed up your target and your timescale, but you're still not able to be 100% sure. Okay, this is the school saying, yes, let's go to the next phase. This is not yet the school or the fundraiser being able to say, I am 100% confident we can do it. We need to go into the next phase. So we've had the planning phase, the feasibility phase. Now we go into what's called the quiet phase. Now, I remember back in around, it would have been about 2004 that I first started kind of understanding all of this and getting interested in it. We used to call it the silent phase. It isn't silent, but it is quiet. This is the fundraiser, the senior leaders, governors, volunteers, whoever's going to be the key kind of project team, starting to quietly talk to potential donors about making a big, substantial leadership-sized gift. Now, What we're aiming to do here is by the end of the quiet phase, we want to have spoken to or at least tried to speak to all of the significant prospects that you have in your pool who are able to give a a big leadership gift, a substantial size gift. And what you're looking to do is to generate pledges. Now, some of those people might actually give money now, which is fine. You need to be ready for that if that's what they want to do. Some of them might want to give a phased pledge. They might give an instalment now and then have an annual instalment over the next couple of years. So again, having gift agreement forms ready to go, if that's the case. Some of people people might want to pledge a gift, but not actually make anything, uh, make the gift now at all. But they're pledging to give the gift later at a particular point in time. Again, you can use a gift agreement to structure that. Not legally binding, but it means that you know that there hasn't been any misunderstanding on either side about the fact they've pledged. And sometimes it depends a little bit on the project, but sometimes there's some flexibility here that if you don't have a definitive yes, we can go ahead in the feasibility study, but the signs are good. The first part of your quiet phase, actually, you could say, actually, to be honest, at the moment, we're not actually accepting donations quite yet. We want to get some really firm pledges, gift agreements from enough people and then we're going to come back to you to start enacting those gift agreements. And when we really know that, that we're on through the right project and that we've got the um, the enthusiasm within our community to make it happen. So a little bit of flexibility in there as well. So at the end of your quiet phase, what you're looking to achieve is, I often say, 70% of your target pledge. Now, different advisors will say different things some people say 60 percent something 90 percent or whatever it doesn't matter exactly what the percentage is but 70 percent feels about right like a really substantial amount of your target has been formally pledged so that would be partly received partly in gift agreements and at that point at the end of that quiet phase you're able to confirm really confirm the target and the time scale for the rest of the project which up until now as i've said 
still needs to retain a little bit of fluidity based on how people are going to respond to the project. Then, and only then, are you ready to go into the public phase, which is phase number four. Now, what I often see, and this is where sometimes things go a little bit awry, is people going into the public phase too soon. And in some cases, way, way, way too soon. Um, What we want to make sure is that we've got that 70% pledged. We've got really good feedback. Our case for support has now been refined over multiple versions. So we know it's really strong. Then we start to ask everybody in our community to contribute what they can. Now, what we know about this type of giving is that you're likely to get the rest of your target, hopefully, from a large number of small gifts. But it's the 70% of the target given by those major donors that's actually going to make the project possible. That's why we don't flip it around. We don't do the public public phase too early because we can't normally reach a target or hardly ever reach an ambitious fundraising target just with lots of small gifts. You need the people at the top of the giving pyramid who are going to give those more substantial gifts. So during that public phase, that's where you've got you know telephone campaigns and giving days and annual funds being really refocused and aimed around this particular project. You want to need to get really high participation rates. That's a high percentage of your current parents and alumni giving. Even if they're not giving much, that's fine. They're giving something. You've got people hopefully setting up direct debits. And some of those direct debits might run for, let's say, three years. You count the total of that amount towards the campaign target. That's all fairly standard best practice. And at the end of the public phase, you've done it. You get to celebrate. You've got 100% of your target raised. You get to do your big party or whatever it might be, kind of a launch for the actual project itself. So the campaign is coming to an end, but the project is then able to start. And as a side note, it's very difficult to fundraise for a project that's already started especially if it's a buildings project, if donors can see that you've already started building and you're asking them for money, they start to suspect that either you've started building without having the the money that you need, which is pretty risky, or you've somehow got another, you've got access to other money that you haven't told the donors about because you're able to go ahead confidently with the build, in which case, why do you need their support? It's not going to be the make or break for the project. So it's pretty difficult to start building before you finish the fundraising. Those of you who are observant and good active listeners will realise that I said there were five stages, we've just covered four of them and I've completed the project. That is because phase number five is stewardship. Stewardship is a fancy word for looking after your donors after they've given you the money. And this fifth phase of stewardship basically goes on forever, effectively, but it's particularly active in the years after the campaign has has raised the full target, you're keeping those donors up to date with the project. You're giving them impact reports, letting them come around and and you know see the new building or have um, some impact reports with with anonymous quotations from bursary holders going out to them. So the sense of the impact is really real to those donors. And obviously, you'll be treating different scale donors in different ways. You might have some donor dinners for people who've given a lot and something a little bit more mass for people who've given smaller amounts. Now we know that although this is the campaign phase, final phase, that stewardship for some people, not all, some people will then roll into cultivation, which means getting people ready to ask them again for the next project, the next campaign that you're running. So it's kind of an ever 
ongoing circle of stewardship and relationship building with those donors. So those are your five phases. Planning, feasibility, quiet, public and stewardship. And basically, my my takeaway from this episode is break those rules at your peril. You really need to know what you're doing if you're going to break through and not do the phases that I've just described them. But as you know, next week, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how you can adjust that, but you have to do it really understanding how all of those pieces fit together. So very briefly, a couple of other quick points. One of the ways to think about those five phases, to think about what happens for each of your fundraising methods in each of those stages. Now, in schools, we normally have three fundraising methods that we're using, major gifts fundraising, regular giving and legacy programmes. Some schools might be doing trust and foundations and corporates and things like that as well, which is great. But most of the time, it's major gifts, regular giving and legacies that schools are focusing on. So for major gifts, basically, that is the core function of the fundraising team throughout the entire set of phases. So from feasibility, quiet and public phases, you're really focusing on major gifts fundraising the whole time, basically. For regular giving, you should have a regular giving programme throughout all of what you're doing. So that would mean that it's running in the background throughout all of your five stages. But during the public phase, it's really helpful if your regular giving programme is geared around the project that you're fundraising for, your fundraising campaign. Depending on the project and depending on how your regular giving is set up, sometimes it's possible to to nominate a period of time which is campaign timeframe and then to count the regular giving which is received during the feasibility and quiet phase or even the planning feasibility and quiet phase, counting that regular giving to the campaign target. But there are nuances in there as to when that's appropriate and when it's not. And then finally, legacies. Legacy fundraising just happens regardless of everything else. It's an ongoing conversation with potential legators, people who want to leave money to your school in their will. Because we obviously don't know when that gift will actually happen, because it happens at the time of their death. We don't know when that's going to be. The rule of thumb generally is that those legacies should be unrestricted whenever possible. So that the legator, the donor, doesn't specify in their will what it's for. Or if it is specified because the the, the donor really wants to specify, that's fine if that's what they really want, but it's kept pretty broad. So it might be for bursaries, for example, but it's not going to say it's for a particular campaign. So obviously we don't know when that gift is going to happen. So legacy fundraising happens throughout, ideally with unrestricted legacies. And then often what I see is if a legacy occurs, it's actually someone dies, the legacy actually is received during the campaign time frame, then, again, depending on the details, it might be appropriate to allocate that legacy to this particular campaign, to this particular project that you're raising money for. Again, depends a little bit on the details behind the scenes. So the legacy fundraising is happening all the time, unrestricted, the regular giving is happening all the time, but it's really focused on the campaign during the public phase. And the major gifts fundraising is focused on the campaign, specifically the campaign uh, project, all the way through the feasibility, quiet and public phases. One final point before I sign off for this episode, and you'll see now why it was way too long for me to cover next week's subject at the same time as this one. So one of the questions that people often ask is, 
How long does all of this take? How long does it take to go through each of these phases? Now, the timing depends on the target, basically. If you've got a very ambitious target, you're going to want a long time frame to go through these phases. If you've got a very achievable target that you're really confident you can achieve, then you can go through these phases relatively quickly. As a rule of thumb, generally speaking, if it's a kind of a mid-range target, you know, quite ambitious, but not really ridiculously ambitious, then I normally say let's start with a rule of thumb of 18 months for the quiet phase and nine months for the public phase. That nine months ideally is one academic school year that kind of works best in terms of the public phase. It's not always possible. Generally, that's the kind of time frame you're looking at to go through these five stages. But if it has to be shorter, that target needs to be much more conservative so that you've got real confidence that you can get there faster. Right, I'm going to sign off at this point. Do tune into next week's episode about how you can break the rules. But my real takeaway from this is you do not want to break the rules unless you really know what you're doing. This is best practice for a reason and it's established within all educational fundraising for a reason. And if this episode has been helpful for you, it may well be helpful for other peers that you have in the sector. So please do share this episode with friends who you feel would benefit from a deeper understanding of these fundraising campaign phases. People normally find this podcast because it's recommended to them by someone else. So please do do me a little bit of a favour and also your friend a favour. Forward it on if you think you know someone else in the sector who might benefit from this. That's it for this time. I'll talk to you again next week. Bye bye then.